everybody, you are now tuned into the Solo Dope Podcast, and I'm your host, Alex Chadwick. What's happening? I got a special guest on the show tonight. Um, I have tried to make this a point to bring some, what I like to call subject matter experts and some good people from the community to the show. And tonight, I have a very good friend of mine, a good fishing buddy, a brother in faith. I have the, the, uh, the most prominent uh, Imam Mikhail Shabazz, who is the director of the Oregon Islamic Chaplains Organization. Welcome to the show. How you doing, sir? Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam rahmatullahi barakatuh. I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. You know, just weathering these storms, literally. Like we, uh, you know, we just gotten this this um, this white stuff that's been falling on us over the past week or so, and, and we happen to make it through that. Are you uh, talking about Trump? <laughs> <laughs> that, that guy talking about Trump. I don't know. Are we talking? Is that is that the, is that guy still exists, man? I think I think we I think we buried that snow right there. That groundhog is going back on the ground, man. Oh, for okay. sure, for oh, sure. Oh, you're talking sure. about the weather. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. We talking about now the weather. I got you. Now I got there you go. You, there you go. There you go. You talking about, man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so how you been, man? How you how you doing? I'm doing. I'm doing well. You know. As you pointed out, weathering the um, the storm that came through, it was nice actually in a lot of ways to uh, uh, to be fortunate enough to have uh, shelter and food and and good company to uh, just have um, the opportunity to not need to go out or have to go out um, and just uh, take it easy and count the blessings, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, yeah, it's, it's been good. Good, good. Well, I'm excited. I'm glad to have you on the show. I know we had some we, we rescheduling. You you a busy person. I'm a busy person. Uh, but we're here now. Um mm-hmm. by the grace of Allah, we're here. And there's so many things I want to talk about. Uh you being a, a very active person in, in this community here in the in the Northwest and in Portland. Um but I kind of want you to uh, you know, I kinda I kinda want to talk a little bit about um being a native of P- PDX, uh, Portland, I know you're not from here, right? But I right. know that you've been here a long time. Um, so being, I guess, can I say a transplant or an implant? I would say a native, but, you know. Well, people- I would I would consider myself uh, a pollinator, you know, kind of blown okay. in okay. from the I lanes like of Chicago, you know, and, and, uh, and set up roots here and, and began to uh, expand my family here. So okay. I've been here for quite a while. So I'm curious. I mean, I only been here for about what, like four, uh, about four, four years, four years and some change. And one of the things you being from Chicago, being here so long, um, I mean, I can talk about it all day. I think I've, I've done several episodes about the difference in the culture, where I'm from to here. Like, can you elaborate on, you know, how different the culture is from a Chicago to a Portland? Well, from my perspective, and I have to, you know, put that in parentheses, my perspective, uh, because when I left Chicago in uh, 71, I believe it was, to move to Portland, um, I was following um, two things. My family, my mother was moving out here. My older brother was already here. My grandmother and, and uncle were here. And I was leaving Chicago after having done some um, time in Vietnam, having spent some time in Vietnam in the military, um, 
and I was uh, living, um, you know, a risky life in Chicago, to be just straight up about it. You know, I was living a risky life, a life that I didn't feel was going to lead me uh, into uh, anything successful. Uh, there, there were signs that, that had I not moved on and and interrupted the pattern that I was uh, pursuing, that I may have ended up uh, dead or mm-hmm. incarcerated or one of the two or, or both uh, because of uh, the the pattern, you know, of running running around and hustling in the streets. Chicago is a is a city that uh, offers a lot of uh, of anything that you want, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you can dream big in Chicago and you can, uh, you, know, you got a lot of black people there for one. So you see a lot of oh, things yeah. that are, and I mean, not just black people there, but you have black people of means and wherewithal, uh, well-established. So in that regard, the culture is, uh, is rich with mm-hmm. expectations and high expectations. And on the flip side of that, you also had a lot of, uh, and I imagine to some degree you still do have a lot of uh, layers of uh, extreme poverty, um, mm-hmm. violence, and uh, and uh, ignorance in the raw. Uh, so, you know, you, you've got that mixture. Um, it's a place where people are uh, very um, outgoing and very dynamic in a lot of ways, um, but you have large portions of the city and it's a big city you have large portions of the city that are exclusive you know you have black people that have exclusivity in large portions of the city mm-hmm. at all levels of income and then you have uh, other uh, ethnic groups that have their cuts in the city and chicago politics are notorious um, you know <laughs> so right. it's 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 that kind of place but you find a lot of uh, uh high high achievers in, mm-hmm. in Chicago, high achievers. Um, coming to Portland, uh, y- you found, or I found that Portland was similar, but just on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. not as apparent. When I first came to Portland, uh, there was uh, a black community here. Okay, there was black people here uh, with means. Uh, there were black people here that had um, well-established uh neighborhoods uh, but over time i watched the gentrification and the displacement which in this city is a pattern is a mm. pattern that repeated itself i think more frequently <laughs> than in some cities i watched the city turn from a, a a place where you had a defined black community where neighbors new neighbors and mm-hmm. grandparents and children and people knew each other and 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 had that type of uh general connection and sense of community and even a sense of respect right, uh, right, right. Uh, that was that was just there it was just an apparent respect there was certain things you didn't do certain things you didn't say around uh, folks and uh, religion was respected churches and people that tried to live good lives were respected and those who wanted to do other things uh, had their field to play in as well uh, but over time the city policies, Portland has a uh, an underbelly, you know, like a uh, a snake mm. has an underbelly, like a you fox. Know, a snake has a well. I'm gonna call him a snake, you know, because <laughs> it has a real nice, uh, you know, uh, top side, 
looks good, but if you look mm-hmm. up the, under the bottom, it's rough and raw. Uh, and 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 that is it's a, it's a form of hypocrisy that mm-hmm. makes itself manifest in the policies, mm-hmm. in the policies that mm-hmm. are put into place that that allow people to smile and appear to be friendly, but their actions played out in policies are not very nice. Right. Okay. And, and that has been uh, the legacy of Portland. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, this idea of keeping Portland weird um, is, is great. If you want to be weird, be weird. <laughs> but weird uh, is translated into uh, uh, miseducation. Mm-hmm. It's translated into uh, socioeconomic uh, deprivation. Mm-hmm. It's translated into uh, redlining. It's translated into a lot of things that hold people back. Yeah. And it's also translated into upholding some old ideas uh, of uh, that are racially rooted uh, that cause the surrounding areas in Portland, the Beavertons and the Lake Oswegos mm-hmm. and the other suburban areas that are actually viewed as part of the metropolitan Portland area where you have these great disparities great disparities. Mm-hmm. And these things play themselves out in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. They play themselves out in, in, in employment. They play themselves out in the way people are handled in, in the medical field. Uh, they play themselves out uh, in a lot of ways that are important to the life and health of the populations here. So wow. that's what I see here in, in Portland. Now, it's a place that you can, if you got your hustle on, uh, you know, you can... Mm-hmm. You can get in here and do and, some uh, things. You can do some things. Yeah. You can do some things. But one thing that Portland is renowned for, and, and there's a pattern. This isn't it's not me just talking. You can go back and look at historically. When you see black men rise in Portland, it's a, it's not when will they be taken down. Talk about it. Then apart, it's not if, but when. When. It's not if, but when. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we watch it over over the years, when black men rise in this city to prominent positions, it's it's a matter you can almost time it right, that right. they will come up with some salacious foolishness or some something to bring them right back down, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. bring them right back down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's Portland. Portland um, is going through a transformation right now. Uh, where it's trying to reconcile itself. Uh, you've got a lot of things going on in Portland. Um, I can't say that it's all on to the benefit of making things right for those who were wronged. It seems like uh, it may just be the fact that the privileged are pissed off at themselves and tearing things up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> Do we want to elaborate on that? I think some of the listeners may be in a speculative mode, you know what I mean? Well, what I say about the privilege, because you have people that are of means and you have people that have, uh, uh, you know, uh, they have privilege, but they are in the street and they are uh, rowdy and they are destructive and they want to have nothing to do with their parents' uh, holdings and establishment. So right. they tear things up, they riot, they tear things up, but the, the, the destructive part is they are like leeches when it comes to other people's causes. You know, like mm. in the, if you're going through the jungle, 
Yeah. You, you know, you're supposed to get a leech on you, sucking your blood. Right. So they become like leeches. They have their own issues, but they infiltrate, mm-hmm. let's say, the, the issues that are for uh, po- uh, police accountability, justice for, for, for black people in one or, or um, one group of people or another. You see this privileged group uh, come along and they're they're in it seem like for just for the heck of it. The just thrill. to say that Thr- yeah, they just for, for the thrill of it all. Yep. And and there's no reasoning and no rhyme, and they try to overtake the every movement and just utterly destroy the initial cause that people were standing up for in order to superimpose their cause. So that idea of we love you so much that we know best right, how right, to right. promote your cause, even if it kills you, you know, <laughs> that kind of and an that, attitude. And that is the, that is the spirit that I have, uh, that I have gotten since I've been in Portland. You know what I mean? I think I learned a lot from kind of looking at that experience, you know, walking in and it's like, hmm. Oh, by the way, before I, before I continue, I'm going to be the Imam's translator who we talking about is these young white folks. I'm just going to put it out there so the listeners can understand what's, what's going on. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, you know, kind of going back to what you said about how black people had a foot and had some things here in Portland. Uh, I think I always said there's that big thing that's missing. And I only been here four or five years is that you don't see a lot. I think they're probably, the thing is they don't see a lot of those successful black people right they just don't see those those real professional real exclusive black people in this community so it's almost like when they see someone that looks like me or you they automatically have their implicit biases you know um you know however they structure their mind about what the community is is here already this is how they already think when they see a black person and then it gets super weird because sometimes they you know weird whatever that means i'm glad you broke that down but you know, it gets super weird when, when you get in the room, right? And then they it's either like you say, they know what's best for you and they push or they treat you extremely weird, right? Mm-hmm. It's either either or it's like we're gonna push and we're gonna pat you on the head and we're gonna tell you every you gonna we're gonna create some problems and give you the solutions, you yes. know. And then it's either that or it's another extreme where it's just like how do I treat this black person or how am I supposed to act around this black person? You know what I mean? I just said, it is a weird place. I'm, it's a super weird place. It is. It has its, uh, it has, it definitely has its, uh, its shortcomings and the, the, uh, the detrimental aspects of Portland just straight up is the, the way that gentrification has been allowed to boil over Again and again, not just once, but it seemed like since I've been here, it's about the third wave of gentrification, mm-hmm. the displacement of people from uh, traditional homesteads where people live mm-hmm. and people getting pushed further and further out because these people who uh, want the prime real estate come in and the prices go up, the land is taken. Or there's a super hyper uh, effort to address crime that has been uh, sometimes over-exaggerated 
mm-hmm. in an area mm-hmm. and you start excluding people out of these areas so they can't come back in. Which is and then the parents or grandparents are unable to maintain the properties. And then the next thing you know, mm-hmm. the properties have started to get lost or the codes. So I worked for the city of Portland as an inspector, even a senior inspector. I was the first black inspector, plumbing inspector, worked for the city of Portland. Mm-hmm. And I moved up the ladder into a, a position of assistant to the bureau's director. So I understand the planning process. And the city planners had a lot, have a lot to do with uh, how businesses die or mm-hmm. live and how communities die or live. Right. Okay. And now you find that the city itself, I'm not saying anything about the city that the city hasn't said about itself. Mm-hmm. The city now that they've taken all the land away from black people, brown people, but mostly black people. I'm just going to stick with black people. I'd rather speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm not being racist in that regard. I'm just saying I can better speak from my reality than I can from another person's reality. Right. The city itself acknowledges that it has done a bad job of maintaining housing, businesses, and property for African-American people in the city. And now that all the land is gone, all the nice homes have been uh, usurped and have been transferred over to uh, another generation of young, white, privileged folks that are coming in, and they have a right to live somewhere, but somewhere else, (laughs) perhaps. Now that they're all coming in and taking over the parks and taking over the, the nice areas. This is prime area that we lived in, that black people lived in. Prime right. area. Yeah, all yeah. The conveniences. Uh, now the city says we made a mistake. Mm. We've done wrong. We want to fix it. Well, the only way you can fix it is to take the people out of the houses now that they own and put the black people back in. That ain't going to happen. And that ain't going to happen. That ain't so, gonna this happen. Is, so here goes another clarion hypocritical call. Mm-hmm. Say, so, okay, we're going to give you a corner over here and a corner over there. We'll own it, but you guys can right. tell us how, how you want it to look. Right. And we'll give you some stake in it. But what they're doing is putting up a lot of apartments where you're not living in a home with a yard and a porch mm-hmm. where you can speak to Miss Jones and Miss Smith and Miss mm-hmm. Brown and Miss right. Williams and all of them and Mr. Williams sitting out on their porches and watching the kids play. No, you were locked up in apartments where you got to have a card to get in. Right. Like so the that's your, you, you come back into the neighborhood, but you come back into the neighborhood stacked like a deck of cards. Right. You got to live in apartments. Right. But the houses that you used to live in, if you walk down those streets, mm-hmm. the people that now live in those houses look at you like, yes. what are you doing around What are here? you doing here? Exactly. We've, and, and they'll look at you and say, we've been here for three years. Right. Where did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> right. Where did you come from? I've been here all my life. From? Yes. But the city's solution is to bring people back and stack them into apartments, which we know that over time, traditionally, these apartment complexes turn into places of, of infestation and other things start to happen in these apartment complexes because there is no ownership there. Those Mm -hmm. are rental units. Those are temporary units. People value communities when they have ownership, when they have a stake in there. But you put me in something that looks like the jail cell that I just got out of only the paint is yellow. Well, Mm -hmm. heck, 
it looks okay for a minute when the paint is fresh and everything looks okay, but pretty soon I'm still in a box. I'm still in a, in, in a, in a small space. I still have no living shroud and I have no green space around me. So how do so we, I'm just stuck. So how do we, how do we, uh, you know, I kind of want to pause and address that. How do we mitigate that, uh, in the absence of, of ownership, how do we mitigate, um, that empowerment, that pride, that, that, um, you know, that initiative to, to try to sustain some kind of community? How do, how do you, uh, from your perspective, how do we do that in those kind of conditions based on your experience? Well, you've got to take advantage of the economy of guilt. Okay. <laughs> so um, <laughs> explain that to me. me. The economy of guilt, where everybody's trying to make things right, is an opportunity to to for the, the those who are up and coming, our young professional people, our young, brilliant-minded uh, mothers and fathers, and 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 college students, and et cetera, et cetera, uh, businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, going into and owning businesses, mm-hmm. having a stake through business, because it's at the end of the day. The city and everybody else listens to the business person. Right. And when you have the business capital, they say the golden rule, we who has the gold rules. So it's business and it's cultural education. Mm-hmm. See, one of the things that we didn't talk about is how we have been uh, seduced into looking at ourselves, how we have been seduced into devaluing ourselves, each, each other. Right, the, right. The mechanisms that have come into play that cause us to, to not value each other. Mm-hmm. So business is one, and there are other areas around the city. Yes, we've been pushed out of uh, the prime areas that we used to live in, but there are other areas now where a lot of black people are moving into. Well, since the area that we have, because once real estate is taken, uh, short of a war, you're not getting it back. Okay, right. so. Right now, the areas that we do have control over, we see the pattern. They push people into areas that are lackluster with services and resources, and then the people start to building them up, renting and et cetera, et cetera. And your speculators come in and buy a lot of properties up and rent them to a lot of people. Well, then now is the time for the 20s and the 30 and the 40 year olds to start buying properties where properties are available outside of that nucleus area. Right. So that as in, in the next five years or so, when the speculators and, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the money grabbers come in to grab property to warehouse people, they can't do it because the property belongs to these business minded people, these business minded people who are now in control of the land and who then turns around and develop the, the land themselves right. or ourselves. I think that is one way to mitigate that. And we have to be honest too, Aki, brother. Uh, some of the problems that we have, that we have, uh, we have to grab a mirror, man. Right, right. And Thank, you. We, Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Absolutely. Have to grab a mirror, brother. Hundred percent. You know we can't 100%. lay it. We you know we can't lay it all at the devil's door. Absolutely. Uh, we have to grab a mirror and look at ourselves and question our own commitments, our mm-hmm. our, our own uh, logic, our own moral standings, uh, our own 
belief systems and where we where we stand in the equation. Where right. do we stand in the equation? It's one thing what somebody else do to me, okay? But it's something else of, of what I'm doing to myself. Exactly. You know, you know, if if, if you hurt me or if some John Doe hurts me, well, maybe I couldn't uh, overpower John Doe. Maybe I couldn't get away from John Doe. But if I'm sitting up there every day with a ball and a chain hitting myself, mm-hmm. economically, socially <clears throat> irresponsible, parentally irresponsible, you know, I'm, I'm sampling everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. I, I have a devil-may-care attitude about things. I give up. Well, then, you know, some of the things that we are carrying don't get, don't need to go on the trip, okay? <laughs> right. They don't need right. to go on the trip. When Moses was uh, free, was taking his people out, they were told to leave all that gold and stuff behind. <laughs> but somehow right. wanted to carry it anyway. You and know it. You know you it. You can't carry that with you. You're right. either going to be free or you're going to grab that gold that you got and it's going to take you down. Absolutely. So some of the, the things that we have bought into, some of the things on, on, on all levels, you know, on all levels, we have to stop and, and see what it is that we have bought into that is not a good deal for us. Mm-hmm. It's not producing for us. It may be producing for someone else, and maybe we're the product that is producing. But we have to <laughs> we have to take a hard look. Real hard take look. Hard I mean, look. I, it goes back to kind of something you mentioned earlier about uh, cultural education, not just for you know white folks or whatever, but for ourselves, like looking in that mirror like, if we're not valuing ourselves, a lot of times, you know, how much more impactful it could be if we could, um, you know, if we knew exactly who we are, right? Or who, mm-hmm. or who we were and who we are right now, like the kind of impact that that can have on the psyche of especially young black people. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So we got to dig deep into our core now. And I, I'm going to even go so far as to say we have to realize that black is our hue but it won't it's not enough to do it won't get us there mm. you know we got to dig deep down into our core and and look at our value as human beings as human beings so that we can cut through the noise the noise of all these descriptives that have, have been tagged onto us and mm-hmm. then when we as we cut through that noise what is our core what's right. my core value who am i at the core right and what gives me the right at the core, what gives me the motivation at my core? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm a black man, 100%. I love that. But I'll have a core. I have a core that connects me to the greatness of anything and everything. Right. And that's my humanity. Mm-hmm. That's my humanity. And when you take my humanity away from me, I'm really dead. I don't care what shade I am. I'm dead mm-hmm. if I have no humanity. If, I'm, if, I'm, if I cannot connect to my essence. I'm dead. Well, you know, the, the, you kind of, you got a good way with words. (laughs) I got good way with words. And, um, you know, talking about that, the whole act, in my opinion, I see it as like the academia of racism, right? Like all the terms, all the acronyms. And I don't know, man, like there's, there's new stuff that's coming out. Like all the time it feels like, right? Like somebody's writing a book about it or something like there's always something different. You know, now you got, you know, some people, you know, you say person of color or you're black or now you're BIPOC or whatever, you know, it's like 
you know, or, uh, you know, or you say anti-black or you say racist or like, it's just a, you know, it's just a whole, or you got the, um, you got the, the Ados movement, the, uh, uh, American descendant of slavery. You know, you got a whole bunch of stuff, uh, the academia that I call it of racism that to me, it's, it's a lot of noise. You know what I mean? It's a lot of noise. Um, what do you think about that? Well, for me as a, as a person of faith, I believe in, in God almighty, one God, the creator of everything who has power over all things. So when I start looking for what to call myself, you know, if you had a, if you went to Ford Motor Company and you looked around the lot and they start pointing at various vehicles, they would tell you that this one is an Explorer mm-hmm. and this one is a, a, a sedan. Well, they made it so they can tell you what it is. Right. Okay. So for me, I look at what God says I am. Mm-hmm. I don't give a two cents about all of these uh, contemporary avant-garde titles that put me in somebody else's column so that they can put a chain on me. Mm-hmm. No, I am what God says I am. Mm-hmm. So that's my core that I'm talking about. That's my core. The humanity. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy into all this language and and own it no more than I would suggest anybody walk around all day calling themselves a drug addict. Hello, mm-hmm. I'm a drug addict. You, you're telling yourself that, you, and you're going to be that if that's what you're telling yourself. Right. But if right. you stop telling yourself that you're that, what is, what is your creator? Who, who, did, did you create yourself? That's a simple question anybody got to ask themselves. If you didn't create yourself, who created you? And what would you call by your creator if you believe you have a creator? And for those who don't believe they have a creator, then they can call themselves confused. That's okay. I don't mind. <laughs> but I have a creator. I know that it's a creator. And I know what I am. And that's my core. My mm-hmm. core value. So all the acronyms are political or economic. Mm-hmm. That's what they are. They're, they're political or economic. You call me BIPOC. You're putting me over here. You call me a minority. You setting me up to put me over and you limiting me, really. Right. You're telling me I can't think no further than right, what you right. said I am. Right. That's the I gotta stay right there. Talk about that, because that know, I gotta I stay in that descriptive that you just gave me. Right. Okay. And if I and if I come out of that, then I'm afraid that I might be accused of being uh, equal racist or or, or, or rebellious. Or, why why you got to call yourself this and that? Right. Right. Why can't we all be this or that, buy right. this and buy that. Well, if that's what you want to be, I can acknowledge that. Right. That's not who I am. Right. And but the key is the the bullies, the bulliness, the bullying that goes on, the bullying that goes on. That mm-hmm. says if you don't acknowledge all of these uh, book of names or, or, or acronyms, you got to man. You have to spend, you spend your whole life trying to figure out. You, you know what to call yourself based right. on what's new this this week. Right. What's new next week? And if you don't, and you make a mistake, then the whole world jumps on you. Everybody jumps on you with both feet <laughs> to beat you down to the ground because you forgot one of the acronyms. You forgot to add a right, right, I to it. You know, right. A vowel. So, 
that's that, that's, that, that's that cancel culture, man. That cancel culture is so so toxic. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's really got prevalent within the past couple of years for sure. I say past three, four years. You know, no no pun intended with the correlation of what was going on. But you know, that cancel culture is something that, to be honest, I I just can't understand it. Like that cancel culture does put us in a box. Like, for example, I'm going to use an example. You probably remember this. I think we talked about this before. When our now president, he wasn't president at the time, when he said, you ain't black if you, what do he say? You ain't black if you don't vote for me. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> like when, when people say that, I'm like, is that, is that slick microaggression talk? What is that? Like when you say something like that, something as exclusive as that, I think honestly, I think I think white liberals don't understand it. And if they do understand it, they won't speak about it. But I'm like, to me, that is racist for you to say, because we're not no monolithic people. No, we're not. You know? And every, and I think I think being being black in America, everybody say, well, you black. So you must be A, B and C. Like, here's the criteria. Here's the characteristics. Um, and the cancel culture is like once you go outside of that box, like you say, or you make a mistake. And most of the time you don't have to make a mistake, but you just got to have a different opinion or a different view you done, you know, that demographic, mm -hmm. they don't want you nowhere around. They trying to get rid of you in all forms and fashion. You know what I mean? And, and the, the, but the, um, irony of it all is an oppressed people, oppressing people. What mm -hmm. sense does that make? Mm -hmm. You know, you, <laughs> you, you oppress people, but you oppressing people and, and because you do the same thing that you just got to call up, calling somebody else out for. Uh, so knowing oneself, and you're right, we're not monolithic people. You know, we are we are people, and we have varying views and and loyalties, etc. And that's why I said we get back to the essence. I don't care what title anyone puts on themselves or how they approach life or what their political views are, I'm going to be able to connect in my mind with them, interact with them, challenge them, or maybe even try to defeat them if necessary, because some people need to be defeated the way they're coming at you. Right. I mean, that's just a fact. Right. But I'm dealing with a human being. So mm -hmm. I'm dealing with human nature. I'm right. not dealing with something else. So I have to go right back to what am I? I'm human. Mm -hmm. What is that person? Human. And what is that person's nature? Human nature. What is my nature? Human nature. So I have to base my approach on human nature. Now, that human being may be acting like an animal. Okay, <laughs> well, you know, right. you're acting like an animal, but I still know that you're acting mm -hmm. because inside of that is a human. Right. And I can relate to the human. I know what the, the movements of a human is and how the human mind works. And so your lie that you are superior is a lie. You're not superior. Mm -hmm. You can't be superior. There is no superiority mm -hmm. in this whole makeup of human beings. There so, is no superiority. So, so, let's, so you're getting, I want to, I want to talk, talk about before we move on anything else, what you just All said, right. I want, cause I want you to go there for a little bit. When we, cause I've talked about, white supremacy, white privilege, all this stuff, right? Which me personally, I don't subscribe to 100%, right? right? So based on what you just said and what I just said, I want you to tell my listeners 
where that structure, where that those values come from with you personally? I mean, I can, I, this is my show, but I want, I, I got a guess and I want you to tell the people when you, when you say that, where, where do, where do those values come from? Where does that perspective come from? That perspective comes directly from my acceptance of my, of the belief system that I have that resonates with my soul. I'm a Muslim. Islam teaches this, that there is no superiority of race. There's no superiority in that human condition mm-hmm. just by the mere fact of, that you were born a certain color, a certain size, or a certain shape, or what have you. There is no superiority there. If you want to have superiority, it is in the development. It is in your development as a human being because your actions, your behavior, your lofty thoughts, that's going to, that's going to mm-hmm. determine whether or not you are base matter or whether or not you are worth, uh, have, have rose to a point of, uh, of uh, uh, I would say, not supremacy, but to a point of development. You develop. Mm-hmm as a human being, and you're no longer crawling around like an animal. So how are you going to say that you are superior because you're white? Mm-hmm. You, you're superior just because you're white. Or I say I'm superior just because I'm black. Right. Well, we, well at the same time, we are, um, you know, when you look at that word, we, you know, us in the black community, we carry that that those words around white supremacy that, you know, this happened because of white supremacy, this happened because of white supremacy, you know, like it's almost like we feed into that. We, yes. That yes, nature. We, can, we confirm it. Right. We confirm it. Like, you know what? And that's what I've been, that's what, you know, I had this conversation with somebody and I said, I, I think you're moving around too. I like it's got a little feedback on your, uh, okay. I'll be still. Yeah. You guys, you guys sit like a little scarecrow. <laughs> but um, I'm human. I can't sit that good. <laughs> but but that whole white supremacy thing, like that's why I say I can't subscribe to it 100 percent because if I'm acknowledging white supremacy in a, in totality, that means somewhere, even subconsciously, I'm saying that you're better than me. I can't do me personally. I can't do that. I can't live like that. But we get into a lot of rooms and spaces and meetings. And everything is, uh, you know, I can't pull my pants up off my butt because of white supremacy. You know, I can't treat my brother with love and respect because of white supremacy. You know, it goes back to that mirror, that thing you was talking about with the mirror. So I think, like you said, to dial it back to what you were saying about the mirror, the personal accountability, it's like, my message is how how to get black people or our community to actually balance that out because there are some things we we we're not going to shy away that there have been some things that have happened in the country and throughout the world that have been systemic that has played you know generational roles uh generational um effects on on our communities in the United States and across the world but there is some personal responsibility with a lot of stuff. And me personally, you, people could say it's ego, whatever. I am not going to walk around and say, okay, white supremacy exists. And that just because you're a white male, you're better than me. I, I just, I don't know. Like in my head, I just can't, I can't get down with that. Aki. I can't do that, man. Well, white supremacy, the, the language of white supremacy 
is, uh, I think, uh, an acknowledgement of a victory. You know, mm. one has been made supreme. Mm. But when you just talk about racism, mm. you know, racially motivated conditioning and thinking, that's a better approach in my my mind. Mm. You're racist. Mm. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you, you, you're a raw racist. You're mm-hmm. undeveloped. An undeveloped person, you know, mm-hmm. you haven't moved beyond racial identification and racial hatred. It's none supreme about you. None, su- <laughs> it's none supreme about you. <laughs> right, at all. right, right. You're just a racist, you know. Right. You're just a racist. You, 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 are, you, you, you got racist ideas. You're, 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 you're a hatred. You're a racial hater. Those, that's that's your language. You ain't mm-hmm. supreme. That's no. You don't get no victory call. No victory. Right. the victory lap. But you supreme because you're right. You you condoning and acknowledging victory. This is white supremacy. You're saying that it's supreme. Right. No, it's not. It's racial hatred. It's 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 mud talk. It's mm-hmm. base matter. So do you it's, think? Um. Like, like I always say, you know, I reserved, I reserved the word racist for some real, you know, some real, uh, exclusive stuff. Uh, do you feel like, um, do you feel like in the community that we're in, does, you know, where on the scales do you see, uh, racism and something of sort of like the implicit bias, like, you know, on those scales, how do you, how do you see it from your perspective? Is it like, you know, when you walk out, do you think people lean more or, or are starting to behave and 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 have the character of this implicit bias that they may have against the, our community? Or do you think it's like, yo, these people are so real racist? You know what I mean? Like, what do you think about that? Well, I think, honestly, that that implicit bias allows a person to practice and benefit from racism without being called on it. Mm. And they can convince themselves and them, their hypocritical selves that they are not part of the problem. Mm. Okay. But a racist straight up in your face is no, there's no hypocrisy there at all. It's just, that's just raw and out of the open. Implicit right. bias. You got a lot of liberal gibberish hypocrisy going on mm-hmm. where people want to pretend like mm-hmm. they've convinced themselves that somehow they have gotten over it, that they're, that they are, they're not uh, uh, practicing racism at all. Right. And that it's all in your mind, <laughs> you know, yep. it's all in your mind. So they get a chance to go home and go to sleep and cut clean. They can stick a little sign in the yard and say black uh-oh, lives matter uh-oh, uh-oh. and not speak to you <laughs> next door. They can do that, you know, because uh, they've already paid at the office. They got a sign and that's all they need to do. Uh, just don't uh-huh. ask them to go any further than that. Right. So that's that implicit bias where you just refuse to even consider, really consider the impact of your actions, your speech, your practices on someone else, or you demand that others be like you, mm-hmm. or you can, you write them off. You write them off. Well, I think, I think, I think, I think you've got, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard to say, but I think we are in a time where maybe, you know, 
white people in this community or across the, the globe, really, but I, I just use this community, for example, maybe they are waking up to like, like you said, it's like, hey, we made a mistake. We did some wrongs. You know, you got people out here that because of the guilt, right? They're trying to push forward and do some things. Um, but like you said, there's still an element of they can still go home and sleep, right? And still be in their comfort and their, you know, their privileged lives, basically, if that's how you want to see it. But um, it baffles me because you don't know. To me, I have trust issues out here. Like, seriously, like, I have trust issues. Like, one of the things I noticed, um, you know, when I first moved out here, got to the masjid and and and, and someone was explaining to me, um, I won't put his name over the air, but one of the brothers was explaining to me about he said, look at the neighborhood, just like what you were saying, you know, this was a black house. That was a black house. This whole community was black. And I was like, I don't believe that because here I am walking out on the sidewalk, watching people coming towards me. They going to mm -hmm. get across the street or they going to get out the way. And then when you, I've, I'm telling you, I've spoken to white people in that community and they looked at me like I was crazy or they didn't make eye contact and they just kept moving, you know, mm -hmm. like to me, that's just so disrespectful. Like, cause they looking at you like, what are you doing here? You know what but I mean? Those same people will right. go downtown. Right. And right. Right. Everything down. Every down single in, in thing. Your name. In my name. In your name. A hundred percent. And that's, and that I just don't understand it. I, I just, yeah. I don't understand it. And I think that that's something that this, this city just don't know how to, deal with like they don't know and then and, and it's almost like there's some people who just won't listen to black people like period you know what i mean yeah. because they think they got all the answers they got everything that you need here let me pat you on the head oh you poor little black people let's try to do all this and i'm kind of getting sick of it if you ask me it's it's getting a little sickening at this point but i've never felt like that though Aki, anywhere else i mm -hmm. anywhere else in the world i've never felt like this ever in my life you know what i mean well, ever well, I think it's it, it, to some degree, and again, we have to grab that mirror. Um, we have you know, a lot of implicit bias, and I won't say racism, but we have prejudices among mm -hmm. ourselves. That's a good word for it. You yep. know, we have prejudices among ourselves. Absolutely. And those prejudices that we have among ourselves help to serve the interests of others. It serves the interests of others because we will do things to each other um, and that causes harm uh, because we are conditioned, I guess you would say, uh, to have clicks. We have that's one thing about Portland. You have a, a I imagine you have it in, in most cities, but it's so few of us here. Mm -hmm. And you watch how high-paying high positions and influential positions are had in the city of Portland, Multnomah County, the state of Oregon. When it comes to Black people, particularly, they recycle the same people for various different positions, making sure that they get the right ones that have already been preconditioned, pre-soaked, washed, and peeled and are mm. ready to just be plopped into whatever <laughs> like, salad they got them, they're ready to put them into. I'm like, you know? you know, yeah, I'm like, you know something I don't know? Or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, they, you know, you watch that and they just move people around. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to go even a bit further. Uh, there's a skin game that's played 
uh, in Portland as well mm. um, because uh, I'm melanin. I'm a multi-billionaire when it comes to melanin. I'm melanin rich. Yeah, we like you. We, yeah, <laughs> I'm we, melanin deep, rich. You know, deep. I mean, it's I'm just overflowing with melanin. You know, right, I mean? right. It's all bronzed up here. You know, but you find that the darker you are in this city, the more threatening you appear to be mm. to those in authority. And mm. if you have the audacity to have a mind to go along with that, yeah, and you're really considered to be, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, you, you're to be watched. You're, you're a problem. Watched. But if you, if you, as you kind of like the Indian caste system, as you rise closer to uh, the the lighter side of life, uh, you are more likely to be cast as a leader. Mm-hmm trusted as as as, as mm-hmm. such and promoted and and uh displayed as such and i think it has to do too with uh and i'm, I'm going to step out here and i know this might hurt somebody's feeling but it's not my intent that's what we do over anyone. here at the so dope it's pocket. not my intent but it all depends on who your mama is uh, you know because uh heaven begins <laughs> at the foot of the mother and, and the go. child's mind is developed so if you you got a lot of racial mixing here, I mean people black and whites and so forth. But but if you find or who your wife is, mm-hmm. and that's another play that, that happens. I'm just having to call it like it is. Mm-hmm. If you pair up, if you got a melanin rich man and a melanin rich woman, well they're going to have probably a difficult time. They they may make it, but they're going to have a you know, some obstacles, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to always be something that just, they don't just fit. But you take them a round skin, um, you know, and maybe he's not a billionaire in melanin. Maybe he's a millionaire in melanin. And then you, and then you give him a, a European wife to go along with him. And she may be a person whose heart is good as gold. She may mm-hmm. be a great human being. I don't know. You know, we don't know. But the optics is what I'm talking about. Right. It's all about optics. Yeah. Yes. The optics sends that couple accelerating to the top because it's as though they're saying, well, we know you can be trusted because we are there with you Mm -hmm. all the time. So think about (laughs) so think about this. And and I talked about this on, on one of my on one of my shows about Kamala Harris. Right. Yes. We talked about, and I said, and I said, there's no way, and this this may happen, you know, Allah knows best. But when you look at those optics, you what's what's the girl name from Georgia? Uh, Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams. They not about to put no Stacey Abrams. That's why they didn't pick her because you got a a heavy set, darker woman, right? More natural hair wise and all that, right? And a mind, mm-hmm. you know, a mind to speak up and not play too far into the politics game, right? You're not going to get somebody like that as a vice president, you know? Because I looked at I looked at the parallels between Barack Obama and Kamala Harris. I just try to look at them, just their skin color alone, and we're talking about colorism, that's why I'm saying this, but just they know like, oh, you know what, that's a safer bet for us. And she got a white <laughs> husband. That's a yes. safer bet for us. You ain't going to bring no... Uh, 
uh, uh, Jesse Jackson and his wife in, <laughs> you know, no, no Al Sharpton or his wife in, or uh, who, let me think about somebody, another leader. Now you might get a Cory Booker somewhere around him, but you're not going to get, have a wife. <laughs> there you go. You know what so I mean? He's but, subject to, he's subject to be, uh, uh, scandal material, so you let right. him in because you can take him out. Take him out. So the colorism is definitely real, like you said. Um, is to me, I, I see it clear as day based on, you know, when they when they started going down down the line of like we're gonna pick. It's got to be an African American female for vice president, right? This is how they came out. They had some they had some runnings, <clears throat> and I was like, well, maybe they should pick Stacey Abrams. They should pick this woman because of. I think she's a better pick. That's just me, you know? Um, but I knew that Kamala Harris is going to jump out there based on big things, based on the way she looked and the way she, this is going to piss some people off, based on the way she behaves, mm-hmm. right? The way she behaves. And I mean, in a like, I don't mean in like she acts white or anything, like in a stat quo way, right? Like she's yeah. not, I don't think she's the one that, you know, I don't think she I don't think she's the one that's really just going to stick her foot up in there when it gets really rough, you know, or really speak out about some of these things. Everything I think that they have is a playbook. Right. We've been yeah. seeing it since the beginning of time. Like, I mean, Joe Biden been in office or been in, been in politics for, you know, damn near 50 years and everything is a playbook. So, like, when they say things, it's all just like surface stuff. You know what I mean? And then if it's something that contends with them, they they're silent. Right. Mm-hmm. It's silent. If it don't meet their agenda, they're silent. And I always had a problem with that. You know that. But that's but that's American politics for you. You know, mm-hmm. that's American politics for you. Well, look, I, I don't want to stay on, on, on politics in the, in the Portland community, because I definitely want to ask you about the work <laughs> that we're doing, that you are doing and leading in the community um, with the organization, um, the Oregon's chaplain or Islamic Chaplain um, Association or organization. Uh, this is important work. And uh, I really want to kind of highlight this on the show because, you know, the the community, the world is asking for reformation in the criminal justice system. Uh, we see these disparities. We see the, um, you know, black and brown people disproportionately uh, in prison. Um, some people wrongly convicted. Uh, some getting harsher punishments, you know, than they deserve for certain crimes. Um, and I just want you to kind of, you know, talk a little bit about the organization and what, you know, that purpose is like, what kind of work you're doing in the community, um, or in communities across, you know, the Northwest. Okay. Well, as an imam in the community, it has always been, um, on my plate, if you will, to, not only serve the community in the capacity of lecturing at the mosque and dealing with issues um, in the community outside, but my predecessor, one of my mentors, his name was Tawheed Sadruddin. Um, I came into Islam under his uh, guideline, guidance, if you will. And part of what we would always do was always a part of our mission to make sure that we covered the, um, the prisons, that we provided services to the prisons. It was just a given. It's not the case in many mosques anymore, uh, but we were coming out of the Nation of Islam at that time, and that was part of what we did, and we just carried that tradition forward. 
And so I served uh, in that capacity for years, uh, serving as the imam of the mosque here in Portland, the Muslim Community Center, and also uh, making sure that I took care of the calls that came from various jails and prisons, both men, women, and youth uh, facilities. Uh, but over a period of time, I began to notice um, a diminishing return on the efforts that we were putting forward. Um, individuals were taking a lot of time, of our time, my time, but they were not really um, grabbing hold to the faith when they came out. They would come out and, and you know, go do whatever they're going to go do. Some did. Some did stay, but most would just go off and, you know, do whatever they're going to do. So in 2000, in the year 2000, uh, I was the imam. I was just resigning from the position of imam at the Muslim Community Center of Portland. And a brother by the name of Deputy Muhammad Raouf, he was a Multnomah County Sheriff's deputy, the Sergeant Raouf. He was getting a lot of requests for people in the prison to provide Islamic advice, Islamic materials. And he would call me all the time and say, Imam Shabazz, I, need, I can't talk to these brothers. I need somebody else to come in to do it. So long and short, we ended up getting together and said, let's start an organization. And that's what he wanted to do, start an organization. So I said, fine, I'll consider it. And he, Chaplain Rauf and some others, uh, decided to come together and try to put this organization together. And they asked me if I would lead the organization as the imam, since I had the experience of an imam and I had been going in and out of the prisons for years. And uh, so I accepted that responsibility and became the director of the Oregon Islamic Chaplains Organization. And at that time, in the year 2000, we also created the Oregon Islamic Chaplains College so that we actually trained ourselves uh, to do the work in the prisons. But we took an ecumenical approach. If I can use ecumenical and Islam in the same breath, we took an ecumenical approach. Um, we went, went uh, myself, it was uh, Chaplain Derek Rashid, uh, Muhammad Raouf, uh, quite a few of the people in the community. It was easy to draw because you know, as being an imam, it was easy to, to draw people over. They right, right. Say, okay, we're going to go with him, we'll do what he's doing. So um, we... Um, we started this organization up, but we we wanted to be an organization that represented uh, the entirety of the Muslim community, and we did not want to be an organization uh, that uh, chose to provide services to one group and leave another group out. Uh, so we band together with uh, with ourselves as uh, Sunni Muslims, and we had the Shia Muslims, and we had the uh, Sufi group Muslims uh, involved. And we formed the chaplain's organization to provide Islamic services inside the correctional facilities uh, throughout the state of Oregon. And we licensed ourselves as, the, as a 501c3, as the Oregon Islamic Chaplain's Organization, uh, with the mission to provide faith-based humanitarian services uh, and our moniker, if you will, is to renew lives and build communities. Um, and there was a personal uh, 
drive also. Mm-hmm. As imam, I would see people, I, I began to notice the young people in our communities, the young Muslims, including some of my own children, uh, have started to just um, disintegrate. The community uh, fabric was disintegrating. Uh, people were running for uh, material things and, uh, you know, the gang uh, life was was prevalent for the young people. And you still had a lot is. of, it still is, and you mm-hmm. had a lot of uh, uh, young women uh, who happened to be, most of them uh, happened to be uh, European Americans. They would come and uh, they were attracted to these young, robust intelligent Muslim boys and, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so uh, you you ended up with a lot of them starting to get into things that they really shouldn't have been involved in. And, and they were starting to to go to jail Mm -hmm. and there was nothing in place to, to interrupt that or to, to uh, mitigate their efforts at all or to help them when they came home. Mm -hmm. So that was a personal drive for me was to, to uh, try to be a stopgap, you know, to try to be there for those young brothers that once they got in, try to steer them back to the path of good sense once they got out. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. In fact, I have to be honest with you. Uh, it's been 20 years now, and it's only the last, uh, I'd say the last eight to maybe eight, eight years that we've seen real, what I would call real measurable results, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we're seeing measurable results. And I think those measurable results are coming from the consistent uh, approach of, uh, of being in the prisons and teaching uh, Islam in these prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where, how we got started. And what it required of us is a commitment. And I, as imam in the area, was, was, and I'm not patting myself on the back or anything, but I was very popular, uh, you know, lecturing all over different mosques, Portland State University, Masjid in Vancouver, this mosque, that mosque. I was lecturing everywhere. Mm-hmm. But my heart, once it got pointed in the direction of the prisons, it locked in there. I was kind of like... Uh, I liken myself to an Uber driver. You know, when you call for an Uber, Mm -hmm. Uber passed by a whole lot of nice buildings and nice things to get to your house to pick you up to take you where you want to go. And I see that God had put it on my heart to just stay focused on these prisons, Mm -hmm. to stay focused and not to give up, even though sometimes I wanted to. Don't give up. Just to stay with them and, 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 and keep working with these guys to try to get them uh, stabilized because most of them, the men that, and I deal exclusively with men, most of the men that I would come in contact with were new converts. There would be few Muslims in, and there are more Muslims now today than I can recall that have done things that are in and are redirecting their lives. But for the most part, these are new, new Muslims uh, studying Islam in the prisons, some of them for four, five, six, seven, eight years, and now coming out, uh, having done time and having made a conversion on the inside. And the, the empirical evidence uh, from studies that have been done uh, indicates that 
a person is less likely to recidiv- to to uh, to uh, be a product of recidivism if someone meets them at the gate, literally at the gate when they get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more they're less likely to return. Wow. Uh, so, you know, the mission became a mission of going into the prisons. Uh, Chaplain Derek Rashid, uh, the co-director of the OICO. Uh, he just spent a lot of time up in Eastern Oregon and in Washington State, going in and out of these prisons. <clears throat> but one thing I noticed, uh, uh, Brother Alex, is, and it caught on to me about a few years back, about two, three years ago. One thing I picked up on was I became the mentor for a young man who was coming out of Oregon State Prison. And he was one of our most successful mentees. And what I attributed to that success by the grace of God was the fact that I was there with him when he got out and I never left his side, meaning that whenever he needed something, we was constantly in contact. I worked with him. I almost took him on like he was a son. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, just always there to help him make the steps. I didn't, I had no interest and I still have no interest in being an overlord or some uh, big uh, chief. Mm-hmm. That's not my style. You know, my style is to empower the individual to do what I'm doing for themselves and more. Mm-hmm. Because the more is do for yourself and then reach back and get your brother. Absolutely. And do the same for him. Absolutely. Okay. So, and, and you can't do that if you stand in the way and act as though you're the, you, you got to govern over people. You got to let mm-hmm. them go. You got to help them and guide them, mentor them, but respect their own, their intellect and respect their, their, their cunning and their, their skills. Cause these guys are sharp. Yeah. They're sharp, you know, they ain't no base cats and some of the sharpest people I know, but you have to give them some space, but you also have to be around to help them mm-hmm. walk through uh, the difficult period of development. So that's, that's important because, you know, from a logical perspective, you know, and I think in the criminal justice system, a lot of times we make this kind of mistake when you said about giving people their space, right? Respecting their intellect. Um, it's important because if you got somebody that's been in prison for, you know, some years or some time, the last thing they want is someone to be an overlord, right? Or, or somebody that's yeah. governing their every single move. And um, I would go to say and assume, uh, 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 safely assume that that pushes people further away. You know what I mean? When it people does. don't have that autonomy to be like, you know what? I got this. I'm going to do this on my own. You know, you just got to be there to kind of put your hand out if they need it, but respect their space and their, inter- you know, their, their autonomy that they, they want for autonomy to want to do for themselves. You know what I mean? Because that's what any human being wants mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And that's what they longing for while they're in there. Once they get out, they'd be like, especially if they got their mindset straight. They're like, you know, when I get out, I'm going to do A, B and C. I'm going to make sure I'm right. I'm going to make sure I'm doing the right things. And the last thing we want is for them to get out and we just beat them, <laughs> beat them upside the head, you know, until they run back on in that, in that space, you know? That's right. And you, you have those who come, stay, and those who go. But another thing that I noticed is the fact that we were dealing with men uh, that were various ages. And some had far more experience 
in drug addiction and criminality than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, some were uh, had a lifetime of of, uh, of criminality and a lifetime of drug addiction, a lifetime of uh, guile and deceit. And I would watch the two, and I would notice after a while, I said, you know, when these guys get old to a certain age, and it seemed like to me the age was around 38, about 38 years old, if they haven't made a decision by then to make a complete pivot, mm-hmm. then I'm not saying that they couldn't, but most of them that didn't, they, they were at that age. Right. And, and you'd have to you, you help them while you could, and then you just... I got to the point where I realized, and I could almost predict, that this one will be around for X amount of time. When they get out, they're going to go right back to where they have been for man, years. Man, and man, there's man. nothing that I can do, and I can't I don't have the economy of scale to spend time there. Right. So I'm going to spend the time with those who will come this way. I'm not chasing anybody. And I watched them and I watched them and, I, and it, it proved itself to be uh, my hypothesis proved itself to be true. Mm-hmm. And I watched the older guys go right back and they'd see me and they'd smile. And, oh, brother. And they would, you know, and I respect them and treat them with respect. But I knew that, that and they I knew that they knew that I knew that they were gone and they were moving in another direction and you I just know. got out of the way and let them go. Yeah, I didn't yeah. try to I don't try to uh, do a whole lot of preaching or teaching or judging or prodding. I just get out the way and, and, and let them do their thing because yeah. they're going to anyway. And there's no right. need to having a conflict. Right. Now I'll see them back in jail. But I noticed that the younger ones that have aspirations that uh, are wanting to marry and wanting to have careers and wanting to do things like we have every, every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, there we go. We have every Sunday. Uh, we have the, the Talines. Uh, and that has explain, been explain to my listeners, uh, the Talines. Yeah. Well, because Talines. I, I got a lot of listeners that are, are non-Muslim for sure. Okay. So explain, well, Talim, explain what that means. Talim in, 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 a, in a couple of words means teaching and learning. So that means that it's a two-way conversation. It's a dialogue and not a monologue. Okay, so a person is teaching, like in myself, I come on, I broach a subject, I'll speak on that subject, and then open it up so that they can get feedback so that others can give. So we're sharing back and forth. We're sharing back and forth. And so that which we started a couple of years ago has proven to be um, the answer to my prayers and the fulfillment of a vision that I've had years ago, like Joseph had a vision. I see that as the vision fulfilled because it has attracted these young men and they're calling in every Sunday and we're talking. And I got a beautiful text message the other day from one of our brothers who said that except by this, by the grace of God, he said this Sunday Talims, and without the Sunday Talims, he don't know where he would be right. at this point. Now, this right. man is not any kind of Rudy Poop. This guy is quite capable of managing a, a large amounts of, of uh, wrongdoing if he chose to do so. Right, because absolutely. Because he's experienced and he's a manager 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm saying, now, he'd, be a CE, he'd be a CEO. Yeah. <laughs> he'd be the Elon Musk of, of wrongdoing. Oh I yeah, he, he, so he could he could be there, but but he's he's he's, he's he, he he committed to Islam when he was in prison, and he's gotten out, and he was celebrating a year free, and he was saying that this has meant so much to him to keep him grounded, mm-hmm. so he has no need to be trying to find grounding in these other areas he just stays with the group that he's with every sunday and and these exchanges and so this has become to me like the crown the the crown jewel in in my cap to say that what i've looked for personally 20 years ago i now see it in front of me and i can and, and what's so good about it is that it is not me, it's not Imam Shabazz uh, dependent. Okay, I might be the, the force monsieur right now, the person that's brought it all, bringing everybody together and making the calls, the Imam that's doing the teaching like I'm supposed to do. But by introducing all the rest of the people into the conversation and watching the intellects grow and watching the confidence grow and encouraging the process of mutual consultation and collective uh, uh, decision-making, I can see right now that if God were to um, dispatch me tomorrow, that there's these guys will just keep right on going, you mm-hmm. know, keep right on mm-hmm. going. Maybe they will put a little corner up somewhere and say, well, this is Imam Shabazz Talim and give me some <laughs> blessings after I'm gone. But yeah. I just, but I believe that because they have been given uh, the confidence and the, uh, the encouragement to keep going and they are reaching back. This is what's so important. These men are reaching back into the prisons. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. they're catching their, the people that they left in and mm-hmm. they're waiting for them when they come out to bring them into the process. That's and it's huge. so beautiful. That's huge. It is so beautiful. That's huge. That's beautiful. And now you got the guys on the inside. Can't hardly wait to get out just to come join into exactly. the, into the process. Right. So right. That's what it's about. It's about human beings developing their lives. And uh, I say, honestly, I get a, I, I feel fortunate that I have been blessed to see the miracle of the miracles of God displayed in front of me daily because I'm watching people that are no joke. None of these guys, and I'm not going to get into their business, but none of these guys did I want to see prior right. to <laughs> right. being none right. of them because these are right. some very serious taking care of business kind of people. Mm-hmm. And I just thank a lot how much they have changed mm-hmm. and the compassion in their heart, the way they're helping people on this, helping each other, the compassion they have for people on the street, their determination the intellectual prowess that they have, mm-hmm. the respect mm-hmm. and their love for God and, and this religion, I just shake my head and say, wow, yeah. what did I do to deserve this blessing? And yeah. all of those disappointing days of the past <laughs> yeah, they, they, have they gone sense. into the clouds like a mist of smoke. I don't even yeah. remember them. I just it's remember a- the blessings of these human beings. And this is the travesty of this criminal justice system that has been so cruel to so many of us for so long that it does nothing to redeem anybody for the most part. 
the but name we as citizens and as people again we go back and get our own mm-hmm. i mean the name itself criminal justice system is kind of yeah. like a running joke you know what i mean like that's just that just brings up all kinds of stuff but uh you know the work the work that you started and we, we're seeing manifest, you know, like I said, you know, you know what business I'm in on my show. I don't ever talk about the business I'm in, but you know right. the business I'm in. I know the business, yeah. And, um, you know, seeing, seeing, you know, I'm glad to be a part of this, this organization with you because we do get to see that it's almost like you get to see people in like the lowest point near death, if you can say spiritually, you yes. know, and come out you know, and, and go through those waves, you know, like, like sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down, but you got a, a group of brothers and sisters around you that are there to encourage you. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and then you have a, um, you know, a community uh, that's, that's receiving you back into the, the, the outside world per se. Um, Absolutely. And we talked about that and, and I'm, I'm segueing into one of the last things I want to talk about with what you're saying is meeting that person at the gate. Based on the business that I'm in, I know that a lot of people don't have, um, they don't have that family, right? They don't have family structure. They don't have um, a good, warm, welcoming family situation to go home to, right? And I yeah. think, your, you know, what you started in the work that, that, that those guys that's been in that, in that situation are doing directly is important. So uh, if you can... He takes some time to talk about why family is important in the Muslim, you know, in Islamic and Muslim culture and how important the family structure is to the black community. Well, it's, it's you know, family has been described as the primary, the primary social unit of life, <laughs> the primary social unit of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it is just that it is primary. Without a family belonging, you find a lot of folks out here that are doing things that are unsavory, uh, that may come from a disrupted family. I'm not saying that the families are bad necessarily, but there's some something disrupted it. And human beings need other human beings. Absolutely, we like to group up. We like mm-hmm. to be accepted. We like to be a place where we can feel comfortable. You start feeling uncomfortable in any setting and it's not going to be long. You're going to figure out a way to ease on up out of that setting and go find you another space that suits you better. You know, it may even cost you a little bit, but you're going to get on up out of there Mm -hmm. because it's going to cost you more if you stay there. So it is important. And in in Islam, our religion, Islam, is called Deen al-Fitra or the way of nature. Deen Mm -hmm. al-Fitra the way of nature. And it is the nature of the human being to be clandestine. It is the nature of the human being to be family. So Mm -hmm. it's family is so important or grouping is so important. Uh, Very few of us like to be totally isolated and alone. You know, you don't find many hermits, uh, many people that just want to be absolutely alone. This is Mm -hmm. what's killing us now with coronavirus. Right. It's driving us crazy because we can't get around each other. Right. You know, and these uh, Zooms and uh, and and Google Meets and Duo and oh, all that man, ain't, it just ain't doing it. It ain't doing it's it. Killing you me, know man. what I mean? Because uh, we we need to have interaction with with other human beings. Uh, yeah. 
uh, and after a while, we start to have psychological problems when mm-hmm. we don't have a, a family around us. And I believe this is why some people, or some of our human family members, uh, uh, like dogs so much. You know, mm-hmm. because it's a companion. You know, <laughs> right, right. It's a companion. You right. got a companion. But family is, is so 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 very very important for a group. And this is why the, the 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 brothers talk all the time about being part of a group. And that's why we always encourage. You know how we encourage you to check on each other. Right. To go see about each other. Don't let a few three days go past without checking on each other. Mm-hmm. You know, because that ties us together. Mm-hmm. And we share the good news that each other is having. Someone have a good, uh, some good success. We on the, uh, we send our text message. Everybody know about it. Everybody's commenting on it. Everybody's excited. And everybody's right. benefiting from the joy of that success. Right. And it makes us uh, want to give. It, it brings out the quality in the human being. Say, man, I, I want to, I'm waiting for an opportunity to help that brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and you just wait and you hear about somebody in the group that needs something. You can't wait to go and help. Right. You know? Because that bond is there. You want to express mm-hmm. that love that you have for each other. Mm-hmm. So that's so very, very important. That's Islam. That's in the black community. In the black community, man, we were the strongest when we had faith and family. Mm-hmm. When we gave up faith and threw away family or got family taken from us or broken up or whatever the case may be. And they be lying too. All there's a lot of lying to be going on about the black family. <laughs> there's, come, lying, let's man. talk let's talk I about that. Like, yeah, you know, I can like what well, you know, they come from a broken family. Our families is not as broken as they be saying they are. We gotta mm-hmm. stop listening to all of this BS that people are talking about. Maybe somebody's not living in this house or that house, but we have always had families, and this is the travesty. This is another sin against these cities that tear up the neighborhoods because your family is not just the people living in your house. Your family is the people live all down the street, right, around the right, corner. Right. You know, people that you've been seeing all your life. You feel safe in your tribe, in your group. Mm-hmm. You find people that come in here into America, into our neighborhoods, into Portland, from different places in in, in, in Africa. I'm going to stick with the, the African people because we know Uh-oh. a lot of African you, Muslims. You, you, boy, come in here. <laughs> you about to you about to go yeah, go, go there. In. Go ahead. I'm going there. But they, they come in, they got a lot of families. They they get then they're, they're, they're tribal. And and you know, they have to work to uh some of them have to work to let you in, you know, mm. because they come as a unit. I mean, and they all stick together and you step up and you step, you might look like them, but you, you don't have the history, Come on now. the nuances, Come on and now. The, you know, the, all the things that go along with that. You, you don't, you know, you, you don't, you don't eat peanuts too. You know, you don't speak the language. So they're nice to you, but you haven't, you're not part of the family. Right. So uh, Allah said he created us as nations and tribes not so that we would despise one another, but so we that know we would get other. to know each other. Yeah, absolutely. And Allah tells us in the Quran that the big, one of the biggest sins is to disrupt the family, mm. to disrupt that family, because there's a sacred tie mm-hmm. in family. So mm-hmm. black people, we've always been family-oriented people. We've mm-hmm. always been. And others have been family too, but I'm not talking about others. I'm talking about us now. Right. We've always been family-oriented people. 
and we had the uncles and the brothers, and, right. and that was made us feel safe in the world. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, we, we, we're struggling. It's a lot different. of things have, have assaulted us. Yeah, it's, it's very different now. It's, it's but we can get it different. back. Yeah, we can get it back though. Yeah, and and, and this is what I'm saying about uh, even just our group. You know, I think that's the point now. Where I, no matter where I'm at, I'm always thinking about this group. And our group has grown, brother, brother Alex. You know it has grown. It started yeah. out with just two or three of us. Now I look up and it's about seventeen people in yeah. the group. But I just talked yeah. to a young brother tonight in prison. He called mm-hmm. me from prison. He can't wait to get out to get into the group. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We got people calling from different states trying to get into the group mm-hmm. because people are lonely. Right. And right. Needing connection. Right. Hundred percent. You know, and a common connection. So yeah, we have family. Family is very important. Uh, our children, they're all ours. Right. You can't. You can't. You know, they're all ours. But you, you know, you can't just brush them off to the side. Right. And this is one thing I try emphasize with the brothers, man. If you got children somewhere, you can't just get comfortable. You can't. How are you gonna get comfortable and your children don't know you know you or know where you are? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not doing nothing for them. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, whatever relationship you may have with with the mother, maybe she got a good reason not to want to be bothered. With you, you <laughs> okay, know, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that may be. <laughs> yeah, that may be. It may be a good reason. It may be a good reason. You got a very right. good reason, you know. So yeah. that's not that's not your issue, but you still have you know your children, and and that's one thing that uh, my next. If God gives me more life, my next venture in life, I'm planning it now. And that is uh, uh, the uh, the family center out here where I live out here in uh, East Portland. Because there's a lot of uh, black people out there. <laughs> For those of you who ain't from Portland, I know we, a lot we, of black we, people out there. We, we, we've been relocated out here, a lot of black. And now, I'm out here by choice. Nice, mm-hmm. you know, got, got a good deal. And uh, by the grace of Allah, and uh, I'd like to see what I call the WD Muhammad Family Sustainability Center, Family Sustainability Center, so that we could talk about that its purpose will be strengthening the family, you know, not just a place of prayer, but a place where the issues of family, family needs can be addressed on multiple mm-hmm. levels, birth, Weddings, uh, counseling—you know things that, that pertain to families. You know, mm-hmm. a center that's designed to help a family sustain itself. Right. So that's that's where I'm. I'm my next uh, my next venture is inshallah. inshallah. I think I'm inshallah. in the right place to do it. Yeah, this is this is a perfect inshallah. place to do it. For so sure. Uh, sure, Islam is giving us so much. Perfect time. It's a perfect time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it was um. I mean, we so covered a lot. We covered a lot. You, you, you was on it tonight, man. You was you covered a lot. I'm glad I got an opportunity for you to talk about Portland and its communities and your experiences and like, cause like I think a lot of times like when I'm on the show, I'm talking about Portland. You know, people are basing it off of mm-hmm. you know the headlines and what's going on right now. And then like, I'm just glad you came on the show so you can give a more historical perspective, you know what I mean? So people know that none of this stuff is just like, yeah. it just happened in the microwave, you know what I mean? Like, 
I think that's what a lot of people believe sometimes yeah. that this just happened in the microwave. And I'm like, nah, that's some deep rooted stuff with this, just like anywhere else in the United States. So, so um, that's right. So yeah, man. Everything I think has a context. Everything, everything, everything has a context. Um, do you do you have any? Uh, I know you're doing. I know you're doing some lectures. You're doing some coot bars. Um, this man does a lot of speaking. Um, he's an amazing speaker. Um, people like to hear him speak. Um, I like to call him a philosopher too. Uh, but um, <laughs> <laughs> call him a philosopher too. Uh, I do. I would call him a, a fisherman, but I'll say student in front of fisherman because I take him out and I school. You know, I had to get it in. You know, I had to get it in. I take him, take him, school him a little bit. You know, teach him a little bit of fish or whatever. You know, I'll just mess with. You got to, to work on that jealousy of yours. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to stretching the truth, man. Oh, man. He's man, stretching it. the truth beyond his limits of his elasticity. Man, it's gonna be a good time. Inshallah, you know, it gets warmer and we get we break out of this. We're gonna get back out there and start doing some fishing Absolutely. and this nature, man. That's that's what everything is is that's what I'm longing for right there. You know what I mean? We're all you and me both. And then get, you know, and then getting some of these brothers out there, man, we need to, you know, we gotta do it, inshallah. Just get the brothers out in that nature, because we enjoy it a lot. And um, for some of those, some of those guys that never been out, they never been out in nature like that. I know. You know what I mean? They ain't never been out there like that. So that would be like real good to um to get that on the on the road and, and try to get some of them brothers out there, man. So um if you had to say, I'ma give you I'ma give you a a hundred and twenty second commercial to um tell my audience, you know, like if you had to give them whether it be a word of advice, encouragement, um you know, in these times that we are in right now, what what would it be? A word of advice or encouragement, huh? Yeah. Well, the only, the word of advice that I would have would be that time has its rights. That can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you good. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Time has its time has its rights. And everything that we're experiencing now is right on time. Mm. It was pre, you know, this is this is what time has manifested. It is manifesting conditions that we didn't foresee or should have foreseen, and that we should employ as much patience as we can and not panic. But we have to realize that everything has a beginning and everything has an ending. Yes, yes, yes. And we have no idea. We have no idea when the ending will be for us individually uh-huh. or collectively. Uh-huh. Nor do we have any idea of what trials and tribulations that may lay ahead of us. Mm-hmm. But those who came before us, they had trials and they had tribulations. So we put our trust in Almighty God. That is my advice. Put our trust in Almighty God. Keep our heads up and continue to march forth. Mm-hmm. No matter what we have in our hands, 
Just keep marching forth. When it's over, it's over. But it ain't over until it's over. Yep. So time has its rights. Rights. And these are the times that we live in, and we have to respect them. Yep. That's my advice. That's good advice. That's good advice, Imam. Um, I think somebody's going to be impacted by that for sure. Um, you know, I, I appreciate you as a, as a brother, you know, as a mentor, as a, you know, as a husband, as a father, um, you know, you've been amazing. Uh, you're doing some great things and, and it's a, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be, you know, what we say, uh, the brothers say, you know, the school of the school of Shabazz, you know, we, <laughs> we, you know, we, we enjoy that's what that. Saying now. As we say, school of Shabazz, you know, we the, that school of thought, and we we appreciate it. You know, it's given us an anchor in the community, a positive anchor in the community that that's allowed us to, you know, have some leadership and then foster leadership among ourselves. You know, so exactly. so it's, it's definitely appreciated. Um, you know, may Allah continue to guide you and protect you and keep you, and um, you know, I wish you the best and everything. And you know, we're gonna be in touch, but I am gonna have you on the show. Another time, inshallah, you know, to start talking about some some definitely um, specific stuff uh, pertaining to the religion of Islam, per se. Okay. Um, so, you know, hopefully we can come back for that. Um, so I appreciate it. Uh, listeners, you have heard um, Imam Shabazz. Do you have any way you want people to, I don't know if you want them to follow you on social media or anything, or YouTube, it's up to you. Is you know, I don't know. Well, I'm on Facebook. They can hit me up at Imama, I-M-A-M-A-A, Imama. That's my Facebook. Or Mikel Shabazz on Facebook. Yep. Now, I'm at Mikel Shabazz in Portland. There's another one in Washington, D.C. <laughs> He's a wannabe. <laughs> He's a wannabe? Exactly. He's a good brother. He's an Imam too. <laughs> just like I'm the, I'm the real Alex Jones. So I'll put, um, right. what I'll do is, uh, <laughs> if y'all listening, y'all listening, some of these people that have, have come out, I got a new, uh, Instagram. So follow me on Instagram at soul dope podcast, all go. one word. And I'll share, uh, Imam's, uh, information that he wants to share. Uh, follow me on Twitter at podcast. Soul. um, I want to thank y'all for being here and listening to us. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate the historical perspective, uh, on the Portland community. Um, and if you're listening, I hope that some of y'all can take this back in conversations and start to uh, take some second looks at what this community is really all about. So without further ado, we're going to get off of this thing and go enjoy our Friday night. I appreciate you. Love you, Imam. And I want to thank y'all for tuning in to this episode of the So Dope Podcast. Peace. Peace.